One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Chateau Gaillard, 1203-1204, part four of four. In the year 1199, the fourth and last surviving son of King Henry II of England, who was once mockingly referred to as John Lackland for having no lands to inherit, was crowned King of England. With it he also became the Duke of Aquitaine, Count of Anjou and Lord of Ireland. In England his accession to the throne went very smoothly, but across the Channel the situation was more difficult. The King of France, Philip II, also known as Philip Augustus, was of the firm belief that it was his right even his divine duty to assert the authority of the French crown over all of France. The method used by Philip to try and achieve this was to support the claims of the twelve-year-old son of John's brother Geoffrey, Arthur, Duke of Brittany. Seeing once more a good opportunity to exploit family rivalries between the Angevins, he took the young Duke under his wing. King John got off to a good start by hastily making for the castle at Chinon in the Loire Valley to secure the Angevin treasury deposited there. Next he headed for England and was crowned king at Westminster Abbey. But the situation on the continent was so precarious that John could not afford to stay long in England. Normandy had accepted him without question as duke, while Aquitaine was being held for him by his mother, Eleanor. However, in the counties of Maine, Anjou and Touraine, John's few supporters were holding out in scattered strongholds under pressure from the forces of King Philip and Duke Arthur. John was not able to hurry south immediately because Philip distracted him by an attack on Normandy. The English troops counter-attacked but could not force him back, leading to a standoff. The two kings met at the frontier to parley and John challenged Philip to explain where he had gone to war against a man who had done him no injury. Philip's excuse was that John had taken possession of Normandy without his overlord's permission, to which John replied that he had no choice, given the situation to act quickly, and was now ready to do homage. Philip, however, pitched the price of peace impossibly high, demanding Anjou, Maine, Touraine and a slice of Normandy for himself. John had no hesitation in rejecting these terms outright. John was probably in a better situation than Philip realised. Richard's recent alliances with the Counts of Flanders and Boulogne held firm, allowing John to feel safe in the north and give his attention to Anjou. Here John soon achieved a significant victory. He persuaded the most powerful baron of the county, William de Roche, who was leading the rebellion on behalf of Arthur's claim, to switch sides. 
William fell out with King Philip over a relatively small matter of a castle in Maine, and when he heard of support for John being announced by both Emperor Otto IV and Pope Innocent III, his mind was made up. King Philip had to back down, and in January of the year 1200 met with John to discuss peace terms. Both sides were ready for peace, having been worn down by several years of intermittent warfare, and so a peace was agreed in Normandy on the 22nd of May, which became known as the Treaty of Le Goulet. John was accepted as the rightful heir of Richard to all fiefs that his brother and father had held on the continent, with a few minor modifications of political boundaries. John in turn recognised King Philip as his overlord in regards to all territories in France. Philip gained custody of several townships that had been in dispute between him and Richard. Other fiefs which the French king coveted were assigned as a dowry to John's young niece Blanche of Castile, who it was agreed should marry Philip's heir, Louis. On the surface, John did not seem to have come out so badly from the deal. His territorial power was not significantly diminished. However, there were portions of the treaty that would end up being of great importance to John's feudal position. In return for the formal bestowal upon him of the fiefs, John agreed to pay Philip 20,000 marks. According to the historian W. L. Warren, the significance of the payment lies partly in the enormous sum demanded but even more in the fact that John had agreed to pay tribute at all. King Henry II and Richard I, in their capacity of Dukes of Aquitaine, had theoretically been vassals to the French crown, but in reality they had only paid lip service to this idea. John's concessions made more real this theoretical feudal relationship. Philip also skilfully included in the treaty numerous sections that were to his favour and John's detriment in terms of their lord-vassal relationship. John was forced to renounce his alliances with Flanders and Boulogne, not just as a gesture of peace, but as recognition that they were first and foremost Capetian vassals, loyal to the French crown before the English. What's more, the border regions conceded by John were strategically vital, especially the regions of Vexin, Evreux and parts of Berry. Here can be seen why John agreed to the Treaty of Le Goulet. Under Richard, his realm had been subjected to extremely severe financial demands. Heavy taxes had been demanded to bankroll the mercenaries, payment to allies and the building of new castles. However, as time progressed, it soon became clear that many of John's future troubles would lay in the unwise concessions he made at Le Goulet. The treaty should have ushered in a period of relative stability, since both kings would benefit from peace. It gave Philip time to settle problems with the papacy over his marriage. In addition, he was able to take advantage of the unexpected death of Theobald, Count of Champagne. Since Theobald's heir was a minor, Philip as overlord was able to temporarily add the substantial resources of this great fief to those of the royal domain. Philip was also able to benefit greatly by the departure at this moment of several of the leading French nobles to go on the Fourth Crusade, including the Counts of Flanders, Blois, 
Perquet and the Marquis of Montferrat. As for John, the period of peace gave him time to consolidate the inheritance of his realm. John chose this moment to separate from his first wife in order to marry Isabella, daughter of the Count of Angoulême in the west of France. The marriage provided John with a useful alliance with the county of Angoulême, but antagonised the powerful family of Lusignan, one of whose members had been betrothed to Isabella. When they complained, John not only failed to compensate the family, but turned on them and seized their properties. The affair might have ended favourably for John had he suitably compensated the Lusignans. Instead, his vindictive attitude compelled them to rebel, with the help and encouragement of the French king. The event was typical of John's lack of tact and diplomatic skills. The Anglo-French peace did not last long. Philip renewed his alliance with Arthur of Brittany, and the two made coordinated attacks on John's lands. In July 1202, Arthur, together with two Lusignan brothers, moved to the castle of Mirabeau, which lay between Angers and Poitou, and at that moment was offering hospitality to Eleanor of Aquitaine, now nearly 80 years old, but still a major player on the political scene. Eleanor managed to send a message to her son, asking for assistance. John responded by moving with remarkable speed, covering the 80 miles to Mirabeau within 48 hours. As John came to the rescue, he was joined by William de Roche, who led the storming of the castle and routed the enemy. It was a complete victory, enabling John to snuff out the Lusignan resistance in Aquitaine and capture Arthur, the most troublesome weapon Philip had to use against him. Yet John not only failed to capitalise on his good fortune, but his subsequent mishandling of the situation backfired disastrously. The nature of medieval imprisonment generally depended on the status and rank of the prisoner. Yet all of John's most illustrious prisoners from Mirabeau were paraded, heavily manacled as a public warning of the consequences of rebellion. They were then locked up, according to William Marshall, the right-hand man of John, quote, in such a horrible manner and such abject confinement that it seemed an indignity and a disgrace to all those with him who witnessed his cruelty, End quote. Many prisoners were sent to Corfe Castle in England, where most would not survive their ordeal. W. L. Warren, in his Histories of the Period, wrote how John had the bad habit of not being able to resist kicking a man when he was down, which ended up often provoking widespread anger and distrust. As for Arthur, his status and closeness in blood to John ought to have afforded him a certain degree of protection. William de Roche had only helped John on the agreement that he would have some say as to the treatment of Arthur yet his call for clemency was ignored. The contemporary writers give differing accounts of what happened next, so the details are rather murky. But somehow, Arthur died while in imprisonment. It is highly likely that John had his cousin murdered. At any rate, this was what was widely believed. The Bretons responded by declaring war on John and joined forces with William de Roche, who was so appalled that he switched sides to King Philip. 
His desertion marked a trend. Many nobles had relatives or friends taken captive by John at Mirabeau, and his cruel treatment of his prisoners lost him much goodwill. Piece by piece, Anjou was taken by disgruntled defectors, leaving John with just a handful of isolated castles. By spring, 1203, Philip and his allies held Brittany and dominated almost all of Maine and Touraine, as well as Anjou. To the south in Poitou, the Lusignans were pressing John's forces hard, while Philip's men attacked the border fortresses of Normandy. John based himself at Rouen and ineffectively sallied back and forth between the front and his base, but he seemed to have lost the heart to fight at this critical moment. The crucial region for the fate of John was the border area between Normandy and the royal domain of Philip Augustus. Normandy, because of its location, was of vital importance. The Capetians wanted access to the northern coastline and control of the mouth of the River Seine, not least because Paris lay upriver and was vulnerable to attack. But Normandy had developed very strong links with England since 1066. Many barons held territory in both the kingdom and the duchy, and the two areas were also bound by strong trading interests. The key to Normandy's defence would be the Plantagenet's network of fortifications. Their castles were primarily centres of authority, serving as headquarters for administration, jails for prisoners, barracks for troops and as stores for valuables. During this period, they were also a key part of a defensive strategy. On a long frontier, lacking natural protection, a comparatively small number of men could hold up a large invading army, while a relief army was assembled to come to the rescue. With the use of siege engines, it was sometimes possible to penetrate a gate or wall. More often, though, sieges were slow affairs, a steady accrual of advantage by the enemy until the defender's position became untenable. Any siege was a dangerous undertaking. The attacker was forced to stay by the castle and so lost mobility himself, and it was almost certain that disease would break out in the camp sooner or later. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The siege of Chateau Gaillard, the grandest of the castles of Normandy, was the key event for the struggle for the region. 
Its newly built fortifications were considered the apogee of defensive technology of the day and virtually impregnable. It lay at the heart of a complex defence system that included an island fort, the new walled town of Petit Andalis, the fortifications of the original town of Andalis, plus outlying forts. Guarded on two flanks by wide rivers, the castle was constructed on a natural rise, with the outer approaches protected by a ditch backed by a wooden palisade, making it difficult to get near the actual walls. The castle itself had three main sections. An outer enclosure protected a second courtyard, which in turn protected an inner courtyard. Each must be breached in turn, and each higher than the last, offering attackers no advantage. The inner courtyard could only be entered by a narrow bridge of natural stone across a steep gully. Philip did not order a direct attack immediately, but instead attacked a number of lesser castles in the surrounding area, effectively isolating Chateau Gaillard and ensuring that his operations were not threatened by nearby hostile forces. Our main contemporary source for the siege is William the Breton, an eyewitness, who provided a highly detailed account of events. The French army first marched up to petit en and pitched camp on the bend of the river opposite the town. The commander of the castle troops was Roger de Lacy, a soldier well respected by all sides. Roger was an Englishman with no landed interests in or attachments to Normandy, and was completely loyal to the English crown. His first action was to destroy the bridge to the castle, making a river crossing difficult. Philip therefore had to construct his own bridge, but he was hampered by a stockade built across the Seine, which obstructed the transport of materials necessary for the task. Philip's initial objective was to remove the stockade. Under a hail of fire from the castle, a group of French troops bravely managed to hack a gap in the stockade, large enough to allow boats through. Philip then organised the building of the bridge. For this purpose, a number of barges and ferries were assembled to form a pontoon bridge. Strengthened by stakes, the bridge was also able to support two strong towers, which were used to direct arrows towards the enemy walls. Now the French had secured the bridge and communication either side of the river, they could begin the work of attacking the castle itself. King John responded by ordering an operation to send aid to the besieged hoping also to drive off the attackers. It was to be a nighttime operation. The navy of 70 supply boats were to go up the river and smash Philip's pontoon bridge. At the same time, William Marshall would lead a separate army of knights and foot soldiers. Unfortunately, the joint effort did not go to plan. The boats were slowed down by strong currents and so arrived after the army. The French were able to muster all their forces against each attack in return, routing both separately. John did not renew the attempt. Instead, he moved his available forces away from Normandy and against the Bretons. Presumably, he hoped to divert Philip's attention by attacking his allies, but instead the enterprise achieved nothing of note. In December, John returned to England to drum up money for mercenaries. 
As the months passed, Roger de Lacy became increasingly concerned that his supplies would not last until a new relief effort could be mounted. He therefore sent all non-combatants out of the castle, so as to have fewer mouths to feed. At first the French allowed the refugees to pass through their siege lines, but after a time refused them passage in an attempt to force de Lacy to take them back. For three months the wretched individuals became caught in no man's land, denied either re-entry to the castle or escape outside the siege, surviving on any herbs they could find or scraps thrown from the castle. For days they had nothing but water and were on the point of starvation when Philip eventually relented and allowed them through the lines and to disperse. By February the French were ready to begin a full-on assault of the castle. They climbed ladders placed against the outer walls but found that they were too short. However, some of the attackers were able to gain footholds in the stonework and some managed to clamber to the top. After bitter hand-to-hand fighting, enough space was cleared to enable more men to get onto the wall and the defenders were forced back. Roger de Lacy ordered his men to retreat. First they torched the buildings of the outer ward of the castle, not wishing to leave the enemy any useful material, and also to buy time for the retreat. The French were eager to keep up the momentum and launched themselves into an attack on the second of the third walls, no less formidable than the first. A group of them discovered a weak point of the defences, the chute of a toilet which they were able to crawl up and enter a chapel within the fortification. The defenders panicked and again set fire to the middle section of the defences although perhaps this time their intention was only to burn the building in which the enemy had just gained access. Either way, the second wall had been breached as well. The main French forces rushed across and the defenders retreated to the final sanctuary of the inner bailey. The inner section of the Chateau Gaillard was enclosed by a 500-foot wall, eight feet thick, and the defenders would still have held some hope of being able to hold out. Philip sent forward a siege engine, effectively a huge mobile shield under which soldiers and engineers could approach the castle walls and attempt to undermine it. The French mining was met with considerable resistance, but was effective. Combined with a siege engine which hurled large stone blocks against the fortifications, the walls were finally breached. The French scrambled up over the broken stonework and forced their way into the inner bailey. De Lacy, realising that he had been beaten, at this point decided to surrender the castle. There was nothing more he or his men could do. King John, meanwhile, was still in England, vainly attempting to gather resources rather than fighting in Normandy with the men he already had available. Perhaps he believed that Chateau Gaillard's fortifications were so impregnable that they would be able to resist longer than they did. If so, it was a terrible miscalculation. It is difficult to explain the relative inactivity of John at this time of crisis, especially when compared to the energy consistently displayed by his father and brother Richard in similar occasions. Having captured Chateau Gaillard, Philip launched a campaign into the heart of Normandy. 
Here the key moment was the taking of Rouen, the capital of duchy, which had formidable fortifications and may have been expected to resist for many months. Instead, the city leaders gave up without a prolonged struggle. Given that the wealth of Rouen rested in large measure in its privileges and rights, they had to consider that Philip would be more disposed to retain these rights if the city submitted quietly and without the need to spill French blood. They saw how the balance of power was shifting and had little hope that King John would come to their rescue. As it happened, although Philip did confirm the liberties of the city once it was under his control, in the long run, Rouen suffered from the French king's favouring of Paris. Also during 1204, the nobles of Anjou and Poitiers rose in revolt against John, encouraged by King Philip, and in April of that year, Eleanor of Aquitaine finally passed away. While alive, she was able to keep southwest France mostly loyal to the Angevin cause, but now that she was gone, support for France seeped away also there. Even King Alfonso VIII of Castile took advantage by making a move to take Gascony, and in Brittany the locals had firmly rejected John, furious at his handling of their beloved Arthur. By the end of 1204 the Angevin Empire was in ruins, all the way from the Channel coast down to the Pyrenees. Historians are united in the importance of the loss of Normandy and how it changed an Anglo-Norman status quo that had existed for nearly 150 years. David Carpenter judged that, quote, the Capetian conquest of Normandy was a turning point in European history. It made the Capetian kings dominant in Western Europe and ended the cross-channel state, end quote. The historian Dan Jones describes how the barons of Normandy now had to make a decision whether to keep their lands in Normandy or England. They ceased overnight to be Anglo-Normans and pledged their allegiance either as English or French subjects. The channel thus became a divide rather than a link between kingdom and duchy. The only open question is whether the Angevin Empire was inherently unstable and never likely to have survived a generation or two, and whether the kings in Paris would always inevitably have been able to turn their claims over the whole of France into political reality. Before making such a judgment, it is important to remove oneself from the anachronistic mindset that this was a conflict between England and France. It was about competing dynasties, not only the Capetians and Angevines, but also numerous other families that held power in France. Richard de Lionheart is often criticised for wasting the wealth of England in a pointless war against France. The historian John Jenningham challenged this perception, instead describing Angevin French territories as regions which made an important economic and financial contribution to the empire as a whole, and were therefore well worth fighting for. Not only this, but the possession of Normandy was of huge strategic importance militarily. If Normandy fell into Capetian hands, its coastline could be used as a springboard for the French to attack England. The problem in assessing the economic argument about the importance of the French territories is that 
England is the only part of the Angevin Empire for which we can compile a series of figures for the King's annual revenue. Accounting documents in the form of pipe rolls survive in an unbroken series from the first year of Henry II's reign, but not so for the rest of the empire. However, what remain of Norman pipe rolls suggests that the Duchy of Normandy contributed just as much as England to the royal coffers, despite its smaller population. As for Anjou and Aquitaine, they also made a major contribution to the commercial prosperity of the empire, principally by their export of wine and salt. According to Gillingham, the Angevin Empire was held together not merely by genealogical accident, but also by the mutual interest of complementary economies, bound together by a series of well-defined waterways, both rivers and sea lanes. By 1205, John was left with little more on the continent than the collection of small areas that remained loyal for local reasons, including Bordeaux, La Rochelle and the Channel Islands. Yet on this seemingly narrow base, John was able to rally and stage a partial recovery. The conflict between John and Philip was not over, and would culminate in one of the greatest of medieval battles, the Battle of Bouvan, that would also bring in the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto IV. Before I talk about that battle, I would like to cross the Pyrenees and pick up the story of medieval Spain. For in the year 1212 took place possibly the most important of all battles of the centuries-long conflict between the Christians and Muslims of the Iberian Peninsula. I hope you can join me next time for the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa of 1212. Don't forget that there is a Facebook site that accompanies this podcast, A History of Europe, Key Battles. If not already done so, please give it a like so you can keep up to date with any news on the podcast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.